It's going to be a little different than the sermons that you are typically used to hearing. We continue through Luke. One of the beauties of expository preaching, we have a new mic, so we're still working that out. Um, one of the beauties of expository preaching is that the Spirit, by His Word, leads and dictates what we address from the pulpit. Um, so we come to a passage on divorce, and we want to deal with it in a biblical and a godly way. And so we are going to look at it this morning. I'm going to be jumping around some. Um, I really won't spend too much time in Luke, as Luke gives very, uh, a very small amount of time and attention to this topic. But we'll look at parallel passages, primarily in Mark and Matthew and the Synoptic Gospels as they deal with it. And then we'll go back to the Old Testament for a moment and see where a lot of this conversation and debate has grown in. We'll take just a little detour to Paul's writings in Corinthians. Preaching on divorce is not a simple topic. It is not a simple endeavor. Um, And that is why the church largely ignores it and why many are pretty much biblically illiterate when it comes to divorce. It's difficult for a few different reasons. One, we're so far beyond, I don't need to go over stats with you, we're so far beyond thinking, I wonder if divorce will impact the church. I mean, it impacts everybody. The church, there are people here who have experienced divorce, perhaps you have personally, perhaps your parents have gone through that, or a sibling, or a close friend. There is no one who is not impacted by it in a fairly close way. Uh, so it's, it's beyond the question of, you know, is this practical, is this personal, which makes it difficult to address at times because it is such a personal thing. Secondly, it's difficult because... Scripture is clear that God hates divorce, and yet at the same time, Scripture is clear that God loves unconditionally, chooses and heals and saves many divorced people. And so how do you deal with it of God hating divorce and yet God loving the divorce, and how then does the church rightly imitate that in taking a proper biblical stance and yet treating others with love and mercy and compassion? It's difficult because... It's such an emotional thing. If anyone's been in any sort of relationship struggle, you know how intense the emotions of it are. It consumes your mind. It consumes you emotionally. It can consume you spiritually. It affects you physically. When that relationship gets twisted up, it's hard to address it and to think rightly about it, to think rightly about your own actions, to think rightly about what God says about how you're acting and thinking. And then it's just as hard to hear a word on it, someone speaking to you and to hear correctly, and in the midst of all of this sort of emotional struggle and all of this intense feeling and anger, and then you think, especially when it comes now to the marriage relationship and the stress that exists there, for someone to speak in on a topic like this, it's hard to be, it's hard to hear it correctly, and it's hard to receive it, and so we pray, by God's grace, you would. And then thirdly, the reason it's difficult is because as we'll do this morning, we'll present some biblical principles that are general. And by general, I don't mean they're up for grabs. I mean, they are concrete and real, but they are general in the sense that every relationship, every struggle, every fight to save a marriage or a marriage that is not saved is so unique. The struggles are 
is such a twisted and tied up and difficult situation. You don't approach a struggling marriage and think, okay, it falls into box one, two, or three. No, there is so much complicated that goes into it. And so then addressing, by the time you reach a discussion about divorce, addressing it is really difficult at times to take God's truth and narrow it in on a very unique and specific situation. So the simple thing to do is to not address it, (laughs) to turn a blind eye to it. Many have, and then you're just dictated by other streams of media or whatever that dictates your view of divorce. And if someone were to come to you and say, what is your biblical view on divorce and remarriage? I think most of us are left... uh, in a difficult spot. There's a few different ways to address this. We, a few years back as an elder session, wrote a paper on divorce. We addressed it kind of in four stages. One, that God created marriage, God hates divorce, God regulates divorce, and God heals divorce. Fortunately, that paper was, ended up being like 16 pages and spun off into another paper on marriage, and from there, another paper on manhood and womanhood. So we're not going to deal with all that in that way this morning. We're going to walk through a few different texts and look at six principles on what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. Principle one. This one is a long one if you're writing them down. but Marriage is the sacred union before the face of God between one man and and one woman that both reflects and points to Christ's love for the church, and it should never be broken. Principle one, marriage is the sacred union before the face of God between one man and one woman that both reflects and points to Christ's love for the church, and it should never be broken. Flip over to Mark chapter 10. Parallel passage to what we read in Luke this morning, but we'll deal with it just a bit more extensively. The Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, to give you just a word of context, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question. By now, we know what that means, right? It's not a genuine question. There's not actual, genuine interest in learning what the law of God has to say. They come with a hope to trap Jesus. They come hoping he'll say something wrong, hoping they can promote themselves and trap Jesus. And so that's what happens here. I'm going to be re- begin reading in verse 10, in verse 1, sorry, verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. We'll read a few verses together. It says, And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. The crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them, and the Pharisees asked, and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus, as he typically does, puts them back on their heels. He asked them a question. What did Moses command to you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So they come to Jesus and they ask this question, trying to test him in some way. Perhaps they think that 
Jesus will take maybe a stricter stance than the law and be trapped in not knowing or contradicting what Moses has said. Uh, If you go back just a few chapters in Mark, you'll remember John the Baptist lost his head. He was killed when he took a stance against Herod remarrying his brother's wife. And that divorce and remarriage, and John says this is an unlawful thing, and John loses his head for it. And perhaps the Pharisees are thinking, well, maybe we can push Jesus and get him into a situation where he is going to trap himself and say something really unpopular. Either way, let's put him where he can't win. And so they think, as always, they've got him. As always, they look foolish at the end of the story. They don't have him. Whatever the reason, Jesus is smarter, so he answers with this question, what did Moses say? And he takes them back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll look there in a minute. You'll have to turn there right now. But Deuteronomy 24, Moses addresses the idea of divorce and remarriage. It's in a different type of context in Deuteronomy 24. But the synoptics, that is where these questions are growing from, is Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so Jesus takes them back and says, well, what did Moses say? What did Moses say? And they give the correct answer what Moses said. But Jesus comes and he takes... Moses' words, and instead of disagreeing with them, he kind of reshapes it and he places it. He he reorders the whole discussion of divorce and remarriage. Because he takes them to Moses, he gets that word, and then he takes them further back to creation. And so he says, yes, there is an allowance for divorce, but that is never on the table as part of the real covenant between man and woman in marriage. This, this sacred bond that God has, has shown, this covenant, marriage, divorce was never intended to be part of that. And he takes them back to creation. He created male and female for one another, and they become one flesh. And we have this created order of marriage, how man and woman join together as one flesh. They become one. God has joined them together. Nothing is to separate that. So he says, the only reason, let's not start talking about divorce as what are all the reasons, how can we do it, is it commanded, when's a good idea, when it's a bad idea. That's the wrong way to jump into this conversation. Let's begin with marriage and what God intended and commanded in marriage. That is one man and one woman faithful to one another. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And he takes them back to created order and he takes them back to what God has to say in a sense to say, okay, you want to know what Jesus has to say about divorce? Don't do it. This wasn't the intended result of marriage. You don't enter into the covenant with, by the way, there's a few loopholes to this covenant. Let's you know, just keep them on the table. That was never the intention. That was never intended. The law then because of man's sin, because of the hardness of heart of man, as it says, the law then make some stipulations to allow people to somehow continue to live and to function. And in that, then, there is this allowance for divorce because we are unable to die to self and to care for another. And so unable to keep the covenants we should, this allowance is made. And the argument becomes all about the allowance, all about divorce. And Jesus reshapes it. So we want to allow that as we are going to spend most of our time talking about divorce and remarriage, allow Jesus to reshape the context of the conversation. And that is the sanctity of marriage. That is the lifelong commitment made in marriage. To begin 
We don't have time to develop at all. I mean, if you look at Ephesians 5, if you look at Philippians 2, which talks about Jesus' humility, not humility, not exactly a marriage passage, but about how to make relationships last and work, it is all about this mutual submission, this love, this care for one another. Of We speak about it in relationships within the church, but it needs it as more than anywhere in the marriage relationship of this dying to self and putting others first of a willingness to die to self, to your desires, to your intentions, and let someone else's desires be more important than yours. Until that happens, marriages are always going to be in conflict. And there's still conflict. There's no marriage that is going to be perfect and without that at times. But it's that constant dying to self for the sake of someone else. And to ignore the sanctity of marriage and the command to and just jump into a conversation about divorce would be it would be like teaching you how to land an airplane, but I only teach you, okay, here's the eject button, so this is how you shoot yourself out. Here's how the parachute works. And if the landing gear doesn't work, here's how you've got to lay the nose down so hopefully you'll survive the crash. But I never go through, like, hey, here's how you're supposed to you know, descend. Here's how the landing gear goes down. Here's a... No, I only teach you when this thing goes down, here's what you do to survive. You know, it's important at some point, you know the eject button, you know the parachute, how all that works. But it's more important that you know how the landing gear comes down, how all that operates. Hopefully there's a constant testimony from this pulpit on the sanctity of marriage, on what it takes to make relationships work before the face of God as we mutually submit to him. Whether it's congregant with congregant, pastor to congregant, whether it's child to parent or whether that's spouse to spouse. Mutual submission to God and then an eagerness and a constant fight to die to self for the sake of someone else. So Jesus reshapes the conversation and will continue on with divorce and remarriage, but he reshapes it. He reshapes it in such that our fight for marriage should be that we might reflect Jesus' love for his church, testimony and the glory of God among our neighbors and among the nations. So principle number two then, divorce is always a result of sin, but it is not always sinful. Divorce is always a result of sin, but it is not always sinful. Or to say, is every divorce the product of sin? Yes. Is every divorce therefore sinful? No. We say this in a, you know, a lot of life, right? You know, the reason you got sick generally is because sin, the fall, sin entered the world. Yet I wouldn't say your cold is directly related to your gossip two days ago. You know, it's hard to do the one-for-one one correlation. And because of the way the Scripture speaks about divorce and remarriage, it is not always sinful. Just a few things from Scripture to set the context for us, for them we look at this more closely. But when you think of the Christmas story, you remember when Mary, <clears throat> the Lord, visits Mary, and she, in her virginity, is carrying now this, God, this child, the God-man. And Joseph sees it and very naturally thinks, okay, I'm betrothed to this lady. Back in that time, even 
the betrothal is a kind of covenant binding, and to get out of that engagement or betrothal would take divorce. And so he sees Mary, and he sees that she is pregnant and thinks, okay, she's been unfaithful, obviously, to the covenant. And it says, Joseph, a righteous man, decides to divorce her privately. It's an honorable thing that he is going to do. A righteous man, and there's, he's never, the story never, you know, speaks badly about him for that. Obviously, the Lord intervenes, the angel visits Joseph, and in great faith, he continues on with Mary. We see an example in the Old Testament, again, in Jeremiah chapter 3, where Jesus talks, where God talks about offering a certificate of divorce to the people of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3. You see the people have been unfaithful. The whole thing continues to build through these prophets of this adulterous nation who is unfaithful to the covenant that God has built. And in their unfaithfulness to God, as this continues to build, he offers a certificate of divorce, if you will, and says, I'm done with you. I cast you off. Now, obviously, we know the underlying story through it all is that God, in his graciousness and mercy, continually woos these people back to him. And yet, he offers it there, again, kind of creating that idea of that certificate of divorce. <clears throat> All that to say, I say this mainly for, for two reasons. As we then look at, the re- at kind of the permissible reasons for divorce and remarriage, what our elder team would have, there's a lot of different views from really wise guys who take the Bible very seriously, who would be influential in my life, that are different than mine. There are some who consider someone that the, what God has brought together, let no man break apart, that that is an insoluble covenant in the sense that you're always married. Even if your spouse were to die, you're still considered married to them. Or if you're divorced, that we might say, well, God still considers you married to that person. And I don't think that is a biblical or proper way to talk. A divorce, whether permissible or impermissible, once it happens, that marriage, that covenant has been dissolved. The covenant should never be broken. That's what it's saying. It's not saying that because of sin it will never be broken or dissolved. Does that make sense? So I think it's a wrong way to talk about if someone has been divorced for us to talk about, well, you're still married in God's eyes. I don't think that is biblical or proper. I also think it is good for us to remember that when there has been someone in your congregation, especially if they have been divorced and they are the innocent party in the divorce, I'll just make one disclaimer. When I say innocent party, I don't mean they're without sin or didn't add anything to it. I'm saying, biblically, when you say, here's the person who violated the covenant, here's the victim, if you will, in it, that, the innocent party. So there's someone who have tried to, to obey the Lord in this, the innocent party, they end up divorced. There sh- we should not treat them in any way as if there is a stigma that they are still somehow married, that they are a lesser person, or anything like that. We ought to be treating them with mercy, with grace, um, and not holding on to some sort of idea that, well, divorce is actually never real in God's eyes, so we treat them like a disobedient married person who they don't know they're married, or whatever that might be. That, that's, a, that's a fairly significant, prominent position among some conservatives. And so I don't think that is a proper, um, a proper way to go about it. 
I would say divorce is always the result of sin, but divorce is not always sinful, which leads us to principle three. Divorce is permitted, but not required or encouraged on the ground of sexual immorality. We'll spend most of our time on this point, so turn back to Deuteronomy 24, if you will. You have to do a little bit of thinking here with me to set up our context for what the debate taking place will end up in Matthew. What is taking place? Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses and the law considering, concerning divorce and remarriage. In verse chapter 24, again, the context is a little different, but this is what they're going back to. Chapter 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, then the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. So obviously a fairly specific event that they're dealing with here. Obviously it's no different now than then. Everything's unique and complicated how these relationships play out. But what the debate kind of boils down to is this word, is this clause here in verse 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she find, and if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now that some indecency is a really ambiguous term. If you go back to chapter 23 of Deuteronomy, verse, I'll begin reading in verse 12. Here the Lord's giving some commands, kind of a, I don't know, a little bit gross in this passage about what to do with the human excrement in the camp. So Deuteronomy 23, verse 12, and you shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. That's the same, same term there, that anything indecent. It's the idea of something that is pleasurable, that is kind of foul, that is, you know, undesirable. So immediately you have kind of two schools of thought that are prominent by the time Jesus is around. So this is setting the context for the conversation. You have a more liberal view from the a rabbinic school and a more conservative view. The conservative view has grown, and they, they basically are trying as much as possible to let the law speak for itself and make application from it. And so this more conservative view, if you look in the Mishnah, which is part of the Tal- Talmud, kind of gives the oral tradition with the Jewish think, it says, they say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. For it is written, because he hath found her, because he has found in her indecency. All right, so that's the more conservative view. They're saying the only reason to divorce is because he has found unchastity in her, some sort of sexual immorality. The more liberal school, which is more prominent by the time Jesus is around and by the time the the question is arrived to Jesus, is a school that 
tends to take a lot of notes and commentaries on the law and quickly seems to forget the law and only know what the notes are that they wrote about it. And that becomes more important to them than the law itself. We've seen this before in Luke as we've gone through it. As they have added so much to the law, they forget what the point of the law really is. Here's what they say in the Mishnah. He may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. All right, you hear what it's saying? Like, she overcooked the steak. You want it at medium rare. It's well done once again. Goodbye, I'm divorcing you. I'm allowed to do that. All right, they've taken it a long way in this anything indecent. Um, and, you know, it just it sounds sounds terrible to say it, but that's what they have written out there. They did the dish wrong for them. So it's this context of, you know, what is it? Again, they've sort of forgot the sanctity of marriage, and it's all become about this conversation. What allows me to divorce my wife or wife, your husband? All right, flip to Matthew 19 now. This is, again, the parallel passage to where we are in Luke, but Matthew deals with it a little more in depth here, Matthew 19. So look at verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him, Matthew 19, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? All right, so they're getting right at the heart of the issue. Like, why can we divorce? Why can't we divorce? You see, Jesus does the same thing that he does that we see recorded in Mark is he takes them back to you're missing the point of it. And he takes them back to the sanctity of marriage and created order. And so he does that um, in verses 4 through 4, 5, and 6. It's the same thing that he's written in Mark, taking them back to that what God has joined together, let no one separate. So... They obviously don't care about that, so they're asking him again in verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And here's Jesus' response. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. There we have our grounds for divorce, the exception clause that Jesus carries on from the Old Testament. If anyone divorces except on the grounds of sexual immorality, you see he takes it and he narrows it. And he does so not on, here's a good reason to get divorced, but it was never intended to be so based on created order, based on sanctity of marriage. But because of your hardness of heart, here is the covenant-breaking reason. And the, the, the reason is, is because sex with your partner is kind of that, that sign of the oath that you have become one flesh. And to enter into that relationship with someone else is to break your covenant with your partner and to enter into a false covenant with somebody else. And they have broke the covenant by breaking that one flesh commandment. If you've ever been part of that or you've been around it, it, you know, the Lord can heal in those situations, but it is devastating and hard to build back trust when that happens. 
And so there is a permissible reason within the law, though it was never intended to be, that on the grounds of sexual immorality in that way, there are grounds for divorce. And so then the question arises, why does Matthew say it, but Mark and Luke don't give the exception clause? And this is where there are debates across the board. I mean, if you pick ten men you respect, there's probably two, three positions held on it. Why did Matthew say it marked in. Some would say, well, what Matthew is really saying is divorce is allowed only in that engagement period or betrothal period, like we saw with Joseph, where he was going to divorce Mary. So that way it kind of, you understand what Joseph was doing, and, and there's people who hold to that. John Piper is one who holds to that and would kind of create his theology on it from that. It, to me, it seems like that's a, a weak argument. One, they're going back to Deuteronomy 24, and Deuteronomy 24 in no way is dealing with betrothal. It is dealing with divorce of married people. Within the context of Matthew, you're not seeing that either. You're not seeing uh, the context of betrothal. It seems to be clearly married individuals that are being dealt with in this context. Finally, it speaks to when it says sexual immorality, it speaks to pornea is the word that's used there. And again, that's a bit of a general term, which might cause some problems for us later on. But it's a bit of a general term, but at the same time, it, it, it's not one that you just typically relate to betrothal, someone being unfaithful in betrothal. And so there's a whole lot of reasons that it seems like that's not at stake. What seems to be more likely is that as you read from that literature of that time of people who know what's taking place then, it's like universally assumed you can divorce. And it's basically, they're widening the reasons. And so what Jesus is doing is he's narrowing the reasons. What the gospel writers are doing are narrowing the reasons. So the, perf- the reason they're saying divorce is adultery is they're like, you guys are out of control. Let's bring this thing back in. We're limiting the reasons, bringing it back in. And so it's assumed already that at the very least you could divorce for, you know, getting, being cheated on. And so they're saying, yes, at the very least, and that is the least. That is it. And so they're bringing it in. So most likely it's assumed by the other gospel writers. Principle four. Divorce is permitted as the practical end of desertion by an unbelieving partner. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul begins writing here. We'll we'll jump in 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 verse 10. Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. So he's simply saying, "I'm, I'm just repeating what Jesus has said already. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Right? And and culturally, the, the husband, the man, is the one in this time frame is the one who can initiate divorce. So when he's saying the wife separates, basically speaking the same thing as divorce, except they weren't allowed to initiate that process, whereas now it can go you know, either way. <clears throat> so he's saying you should not be divorced from your husband or wife. And if for some reason you are, you should remain unmarried and reconcile with one another. All right, so that is the point of verse 10 and 11. And now he... He comes back to verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. 
there Paul is saying, not that you can take it or leave it because it's him speaking. It's still authoritative. It's in the word of God. But he's not quoting Jesus. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether your husband will? How do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? So you come into these all the time where there is a, an unbeliever married to a believer. Perhaps they started together and one has deserted the faith. Perhaps they started together as unbelievers and one has come to Christ. Perhaps they were disobedient in the beginning and began unequally yoked. Whatever the, the cause is, God is saying, you're in marriage. If, you, if the unbelieving partner will consent to it, if the unbelieving partner will remain in your marriage, you don't have any grounds to divorce that one. However, if that one seeks to abandon you, you can let them go and you can be divorced, rightly divorced. You are not enslaved to that one. But again, it's not a command to do it. It's not even an encouragement to do it. Because you see at the end, he's saying, how do you know that you won't be the one that, through your testimony, sees that one come to Christ? So the encouragement is to, is to stay with and to labor with, but there is an allowance for abandonment. Now, just in my own thinking, I don't necessarily see this as a grounds for divorce, but simply the practical end to being abandoned by an unbeliever is there is freedom for divorce. Maybe it's the same thing as grounds, but either grounds or just, you know, there is allowance for this to practically be the conclusion. So those are the permissible reasons. The traditional Protestant position, position written down the Westminster Confession, held by most evangelicals, the divorce is permissible on two grounds, sexual immorality or desertion. In both cases, a marriage covenant is severed, either one by that sexual intimacy being broken or one because the person isn't there anymore. They have abandoned the covenant. So, Redeemer, you're not confined to believe this exactly as I'm explaining it, but your elder sessions we would put forward would be two permissible reasons, not commanded or even encouraged, but allowed because of our fallenness for divorce. That's where it starts, and that's where it ends. You know, irreconcilable differences is not grounds. He's not the same person he was when I married him is not grounds. I'm the only one who cares about this marriage. I'm the only one putting any work into it. It's all on me. It's not grounds. We just mutually agree we don't like each other anymore. It's not grounds. And to try to create that to be grounds is to directly disobey and break the commandment of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ giving himself for the church. 
this beautiful gift of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, and breaking that covenant. That's a serious thing. Now, here's where the difficulty enters in. And I can't give you hard and fast answers right now, except I would just say the Scripture always seems to narrow the reasons. But when it says sexual immorality on the grounds of pornea, what exactly is then sexual immorality? Is it only I had sex with someone else outside of the marriage covenant? Or is it, you know, my wife has a work husband who she is more emotionally involved with than me? Is that unfaithfulness? Or my husband is addicted to pornography. He gives himself to hours of it every week. Is that unfaithfulness? What exactly is abandonment? Is it, you know, my husband is abusive and so we need to be separated, but that means we should be divorced as well. Is it, you know, he is, I've been abandoned, basically he's there, but that's it. Or, you know, that person is addicted to, to drugs and to painkillers and he's controlled by that. And he's abandoned our covenant because he just is enslaved to that. <clears throat> There's a lot of things that start to grow up that don't have simple answers. And so, you know, that's why we pray as pastors to have wisdom in addressing those issues individually. Just say, as a principle, the scripture always narrows it and tightens it into what the permissible reasons are. There are times when you would definitely recommend separation if someone's in danger because of abusive reasons. But does that automatically mean divorce? Or is there a period that you want to give towards reconciliation? How, how does that work? And so I'm not pretending like this one statement answers every question, but it should answer a lot of them. And most of the stuff we try to sneak in there, like he's not the same person, I don't even like him anymore, those aren't grounds for divorce. All right. I've got to get moving here. Principle number five. Just two more here. Principle number five. Remarriage is not required but is permissible for the innocent party when divorce was biblically permissible. Remarriage is not required but is permissible for the innocent party when divorce was biblically permissible. Again, this is where some people will take different way routes. Some people, conservative leaders, will argue that you know, there are clauses for divorce but there is no clause for remarriage. I would say that both texts are fairly clear. In Mark 10, there seems to be... I'll flip to Mark 10 real quickly if you want to go there with me. Oh, maybe I'm in Matthew. I'm sorry, Matthew 19. Matthew 19 and verse 9. Apologize for that. 19 says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That exception clause for, exception for, in, for sexual immorality seems to qualify both the divorcing and the marrying of another. To say, if your marriage was not biblically permissible, if your divorce was not biblically permissible, then remarriage is not an option for you, or you'll be committing adultery. 
However, if your divorce is biblically permissible, again, not commanded or encouraged, but biblically permissible, then remarriage is permissible for you. The same thing in 1 Corinthians, that abandonment by a believer, that you are no longer enslaved to that one, seems to indicate there is a freedom. You're not still married in God's eyes. If there is a permissible divorce for the innocent party, remarriage is permissible. However, for the guilty party, for them to remarry is adultery. If you're divorced for unbiblical reasons, you should not remarry. Uh, That's a hard saying. No one preaches that because no one wants to hear that. But if you're divorced for unbiblical reasons, for you to get remarried is adultery. But at the same time, for the one who was the innocent party, who was divorced biblically, permissibly, for them to get remarried, we should not treat that as suspicious or wrong. The Bible permits it. That would be the stance we would take here at Redeemer as well. Finally, point six, the last principle. Those divorced and remarried for unpermissible reasons should stay married to their current spouse, repent of their sin, and receive forgiveness. I think that's just the inference from it all. We won't take time to develop that too much, except if you've been divorced for a wrong reason, you've gotten remarried, the biblical thing isn't to now leave that person. For those who have been divorced for the wrong reason and have remarried, you should stay married to your current spouse. You should repent of your sin and you should receive the forgiveness that is offered to you from Jesus Christ. <clears throat> These are little, again, it's a, it can be a tricky topic because everyone's got a different case in their mind that they're applying this to. And perhaps you're applying it to yourself at this moment. And these are true biblical concrete statements. And yet, you know, there is, as you work them into individual circumstances, there is wisdom that needs to be applied. But I would say you don't get the budget very far. (laughs) The lines are what the lines are for the most part. A marriage on divorce is weird, especially when you start talking about permissible, permissible reasons. We're not encouraging you to, you know, find some loopholes, take advantage of it. We're saying because of the hardness of heart, because of sin, God does allow for this. And the church doesn't need to draw a standard above what the Lord has drawn as if we're on a higher plane biblically. So, to the married, don't get divorced. Fight for your marriage. For some of you, the majority of your marriage is just a joy and it's great and you actually like and love the person you're with. It's not that way for everybody. All the, I mean, everyone doesn't experience that 100% of the time. I realize that. For some, that's generally how it is. For others, it's an uphill battle. But it's a battle you have to fight. <laughs> I just saw someone go, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> so, it could be a steep battle. But it's a battle you need to fight. It reflects Christ giving himself for the church. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You know, there's not a level you'll reach where you're like, well, I've sacrificed enough. You know, and Christ would sign off on that. No. You die to self, you give yourself to it. It's a testimony to the world around us. 
for those who are unmarried but moving towards marriage, take the sanctity of marriage a commitment seriously in your mind. Thirdly, to those who are divorced or close to someone who is divorced and they are the innocent party in it, don't treat that person with a stigma as if you're holding them to a higher standard than the New Testament would hold them to. Receive them graciously. And then finally, the one who is divorced for the wrong reason, remarried. God heals divorce. Repent. And then rest in his forgiveness. You're not forever going to have that held against you by the Lord. He forgives. He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. And we should be a body who treats people the same way, who loves to show mercy, and yet at the same time takes the sanctity of marriage very, very seriously. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we have gotten it correct as we look at what it tells us about marriage, the sanctity of marriage, how we are to live before you. I encourage you to sit there with your eyes closed. You think about these things for just a moment longer. I invite the worship team up. We'll be dismissed for worship response and song and then a benediction from